0: If you stick around long enough, time has a funny way of making you know. It can be really hard, 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 but something will just drop, you know, and it's like, oh my God, there's there's another avenue to, and you spurt through it, you know, and that's how the growth happens. It you don't start here and go straight to there. It's hit a wall. Oh shit! Give up or overcome it, you know. Uh, Next one, next next problem. Oh, shit, I got another choice. You know, give up or work around it. And so the more times you work around it, the more market share you get and the more distance you put between you and the competitors and time's the only thing that can do that.
1: What is up, you sexy bastards? It's your boy, Cali Burrito, aka Rabbi Can't Lose, aka me, Noah Kagan. In today's episode, I talked to Brian Smith, the founder of Ugg Boots. Yes, the well-known boots you've probably heard of or own. Now, at age 29, Brian Smith came to America to find the next big thing in America and bring it back to Australia. He realized quickly, though, he should bring these Ugg Boots that are popular in Australia to America, and he became a millionaire 17 easy years later. They were not easy, and it's a crazy story. He has a book called The Birth of a Brand, which you can check out on Amazon if you wanna learn more about it. What was amazing about Brian is he sold this very successful known company, and when we actually went to meet him in person, he lives a very humble, modest life, and very quiet and peaceful, and he's like, I've tried the big life out, but it was something really interesting about him. I think you're going to love his stories and his advice, so if you've ever wanted to learn about building a successful fashion brand and living a great life, you're going to love this episode. Three gigantic things you're going to take away. Uno. When. Do you actually sell your company? So Brian sold the company for a certain number, and that company sold it to another company for even more numbers—a billion-dollar number. Does he regret it? And when is a good time? Two, the biggest lesson Brian learned about branding and advertising. And three, why your hardest moments can be your best. Enjoy those three things plus a bunch more ear nuggets along the way. This interview is part of a super viral video called "Asking 70 year old Billionaires Was It Worth It." Go watch the full video on our channel. It's YouTube.com/slash OKDork, and make sure you like and subscribe if you haven't already. Also, if you're looking to start a growing online business, we have a course. I hate when people say they have courses, so the course is super affordable. It's called Monthly1k.com. If you've ever been wanting to start a growing online business, just go check it out, Monthly1k.com. A special pre-show shout-out to listener Nanda Babe. That is a cool username. She left a review saying, love the podcast. First off, Noah has so much knowledge in the entrepreneurial world, but really draws me to this podcast. This is his awesome personality. Mine, really? And out-of-the-box questions he asks his guests. Sometimes I ask these questions, I don't know where the hell it comes from, but I'm glad we get some amazing guests and amazing answers. I love you, Nanda Bay, for leaving this review and every other one of you gorgeous listeners. If you want a shout out in a future episode, just leave a review wherever you listen to the show. I check every single one of them. What are you best known for?
0: I think I'm best known for being the founder of UGG. And uh, that, that's, <laughs> that's been a great ride because it's such an emotional brand. Very, very rarely do you have people who are just passionate, everybody's passionate about. Everybody remembers the first pair of Uggs they have. They always tell me, oh, I remember I got them in 1987, you know, and they thought they were the first ones, you know, but but nevertheless, I I never tire of hearing people's Uggs stories, and it's very few brands you can think of have that emotional, like, attachment, so I feel blessed for that.
1: Why do you think Uggs bring out that in people?
0: A couple of things. One is that When you put them on, the 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 most common thing I've ever heard is, "Oh my God!" Right? That's the first thing. So it's a physical thing that makes them feel fantastic. But more than that, it's sort of it grew up as a counterculture sort of fad because of the way I introduced it, and that fad went from strata to strata to strata, you know, all across the retail world and a meme world now. I mean, it's. It's everywhere. Every single country I've ever been in, there's people wearing Uggs boots. So it's it's really really cool.
1: Did you make your your fortune, your wealth, and your money through the Uggs business? That
0: was yeah. That was the beginning of it. Yes.
1: What do you mean the beginning of it?
0: Well, that was the first uh, company that I really you know rode to being a really big success. You know, it was a 20 year process, and that one has been by far the most lucrative of all the things I've done. But I've been in you know precast concrete and steel, and uh, since then. I mentor a lot of people in different, you know, retail products and stuff. So, so it's uh, you know, business doesn't matter what the product is. Business is pretty much the same all over the world. You know, it, and it goes through the same phases. We'll talk about that hopefully. And
1: then, how much did you sell Uggs for?
0: It was around about 15 million. I got up to about that. We just uh, had partners who wanted to cash out, and it got so big it was really hard for me to finance. Uh, That's a whole other subject we could talk about.
1: Yeah, I'd be curious to hear more about that. Because I think when people hear Uggs, I think people know it's a worldwide global brand, and I think they'd be surprised to find out that it was sold early on for 15 million.
0: Yeah, most people are surprised. Um, But um, even though I was an accountant, like a chartered accountant when I first, I I quit being one just to come over here and find some new thing. I was never planning to stay in America. I came here looking for a business to take back to Australia. And I was surfing up at Malibu one day and it was, you know, October, November, the water was getting really cold and, and I was pulling on my sheepskin boots after surfing because it, you know, they, they wick moisture out and they get your feet warm real fast. And I just got goosebumps. And I and Oh my God, there's no Ugg boots in America. And I was with my buddy, and I said to him, hey, man, we've got to go into business. We're going to be instant millionaires. Yeah, We had no idea that it would take 20 years.
1: <laughs> it took 20 years to become the millionaire. To,
0: to sell this company, yeah. Do you regret selling it, or how do you feel about no, that? No. Um, this book I wrote, you know, The Birth of a Brand Book, its uh, theme is that you can't give birth to adults, right? So everything... Starts with someone conceiving it and then taking the first action. So me buying six pairs of samples from Australia was the birth of UG, right? And then it, every business just goes into this horrible infancy and it just lies there and, and nothing seems to happen. And that's when most entrepreneurs give up because they they've had the aha moment they're going to be millionaires and then suddenly nothing happens, right? And it's, you you, could, you got probably a hundred friends who had all launched something online, right? And they were all going to be. Really rich, really fast. And, and, it, you know, it just didn't happen. So if you can get through that infancy, it starts toddling, you know, and, you know, companies, you know, magazines write articles about you and all your, you know, true believers is telling all their friends about it. And that goes quickly into the use where is the best phase of every business. Cause, you know, production's working, yeah. administration's working, warehousing and receiving's working and, the sales force is working, and you can run a 20, $25 million company in that youth phase, but if it's a really great product or service, like Agua's, it hits the teenage years, and you remember when you were a teenager, you wanna be at every party on a Saturday night? Well, in business, it's identical. You wanna be in every major trade show, and you wanna be in every mass retailer, and you can just really quickly run out of capital and, and go belly up in that phase, but eventually, you know it matures yeah. and uh, becomes a real business so uh, to answer your question I got it up to the teenage stage and it was growing so fast I just didn't have the knowledge of finance to be able to forecast the production requirements and when it got to about 15 million I just uh, thought you know I got to find somebody who can really take this and run with it because if I had tried to hold on to it, you know, I would have failed miserably that year because of my success. Ironically, I had a buddy who had started a sandal business and he had taken on the license for Teva Sandals. And he'd taken his company public when the outdoor market took off and, and that product ran with it. And uh, he was sitting on about 25, 30 million bucks. And I saw him in the baggage claim at Atlanta Airport. And I just went, oh my God, he's perfect. His company dies every winter. We die every summer. So if we could put these two companies together, it would be a brilliant, you know, you know amalgamation. So, you know, we walked up and I high fived and we said, Hey, Doug, if we're going to do this, now's the time. And so I sold it to a public company and then with his resources, he was able to capitalize on the marketing that I'd done. And then that's very soon it took off and, and became the the brand that it is worldwide. I, I'd sort of saturated, I hadn't saturated, but I'd got you know sales going in every state of America. But when they took it on, it, it then took on a worldwide sort of presence, which was really yeah. cool.
1: Did you keep equity in it after you sold it to them?
0: Uh, I sold out for cash and I had a Riley stream afterwards, but uh, you know that eventually died out. But I, I'm not bitter at all, I sold it at a great time. I was really happy with it.
1: How do you know that you sold it at the right time?
0: It would have been imploded if I had tried to hold on to it. It was growing so fast. I I didn't have the capability to, to run a big company. I knew that. I love the entrepreneurial chaos. I love the uncertainty. I love solving problems. I love shit happening in real time. But when you get into it, you know, my company had already got pretty corporate. You know, there were starting to be closed door meetings and then you'd have a you know, a product development meeting and and we're going to pick the new colors for next year, you know, and I'd be thinking gray raspberry and forest green. And then, and we come out of the meeting with gray because that's the least <laughs> offensive for everybody. Yeah. So I mean, that's exaggerating, but that's, yeah. that's the sort of shit that would happen. And I just had no real tolerance for that type of corporate meetings and, you know, consensus, all that sort of stuff. So it was the right time for me.
1: How did you feel the day it closed, the day you, the deal closed?
0: It was great. It was a, Really interesting day because, uh, you know, when the money hits the table, that's when you find out real character of people. And a lot of greed came in the first, you know, the couple of days leading up to that. But it's pretty natural with, you know, most companies when they get to that stage, as soon as everyone's, you know, best friends until the money hits the table. And then it's like, all it's all me. Really interesting.
1: What did you do the rest of the day?
0: I was uh, actually, I came back from a vacation in Minnesota to close. And I, I just got in a plane and went straight back to my family.
1: <laughs> in Australia or in Minnesota? No, in,
0: in Minnesota. Yeah, we were vacationing over there.
1: Did you feel like you had to go start something else right away? Or how
0: no, you- no, no, no. I, I, I was, uh, I wasn't burned out on the business. I was just, I need a break, you know. So I was, you know, months to a year or more before I even thought of doing something else. Eventually I got involved in the concrete business. And there's no surprise, my dad was a contractor, and when I was 12, I had to, you know, keep shoveling the cement to keep ahead of the bricklaying team, right? So yeah. so from a very young age, I was in a construction. I fell in love with the science of concrete, and I ended up inventing a concrete that was half the weight of regular concrete, but still had structural strength, and I married that up with steel stud framing, which was automating at the time, and began um, delivering precast concrete walls. For a military contractor, and started up a tremendous business. Should have been fantastic, but I was in it for about ten years. With the R and D was probably five or six, and getting set up was another two. And then we had a brilliant two years, put up over a hundred structures in four years. You know, in that production period. But then two thousand and nine came around, August, and construction stopped worldwide. And the the factory was humongous. Yeah. Up in East LA, and the rent was fifty-nine thousand a month. You know, so yeah, we just couldn't sustain no income, so we had to shut it down.
1: What did you do after that?
0: I'd always been keeping bits of paper, right, and I, I was going, that would be good in a book one day. You know, and all through that twenty years of ARG. and uh, this file grew to be bigger and bigger, and it was like a one of those, you know, five-inch three-ring binders, and so. I just decided okay, I'm going to write the book about the UGG story. And so I, uh, got this file and I organized it and, uh, sat down with a box of cigars on the table out, you know, under an avocado tree looking out over the ocean. And I just started typing and it took about a month, maybe two months to finish the whole thing.
1: That's the birth of a brand.
0: That's, yeah, it was, I started out with 120,000 words, but the, <laughs> the editors cut it down to 75 because they, they kept saying, well, it's really interesting to you, Brian, but nobody's yeah, going to give it them. you know?
1: Well, well coming back on Uggs, so when you, and I do have some, have some questions with Uggs, but when you received the money from Uggs, like how did you enjoy the money after you, you sold this company for It you, like, was
0: really, really interesting. Um, and this is how I finish off my book, um, was that, you know, my wife and I had been just eking it out for 20 years. You know, the first few was really, really tough. But eventually we got to where it was paying an income every month. And then suddenly we got millions in the bank. And we bought a new Dodge minivan for her and the kids. And we put new carpet in the house. And that was it. We didn't spend another thing. And it made me realize, my God, we must have been living like millionaires all along and never realized it. But our lifestyle did not change. We didn't go to more expensive restaurants. We didn't do big vacations. We just, we just carried on with life. It's a great learning point, that one. That's
1: really, it's interesting. I think more people are probably living like millionaires than they realize.
0: Yeah. The trick is to be happy when you do that sort of stuff, you know, because I know a lot of millionaires, they're the most miserable people I know. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I wouldn't want their lives for anything. So we, you know, luckily, me you and know, my wife and I were pretty grounded, and we just, just kept living the life as we were. We had young kids, it was all about school and sports, and you know, just normal stuff, that was the best part of it.
1: During your Uggs experience, what were some of the, the lowest lows? You said it was tough for some period of time.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. The toughest part was, uh, but I look back, and these were the best parts. They were so hard at the time. We're, the first year sales was 28 pairs. I, you know, we bought 500 pairs in and we thought we were going to be instant in millionaires. 28 pairs, the first season, you know, up. And, uh, I was so disappointed, you know, and my buddy Doug got another job and I, I couldn't stop because I had 480 pairs in the warehouse, you know, in my third bedroom and, uh, <laughs> the warehouse. Yeah. And, uh, so I the, the next year I you know I said I oh, can okay, run run some ads and so we got two models um, and uh, posed them on the beach at Windensea, down in La Jolla you know the perfect hair and clothing and big tall white boots you know front and center in the ads and the sales that next year went to about ten thousand think that's crazy it should be more so I got a summer job I was scraping the bottom of boats at Marina Del Rey for the summer and then the next fall I said okay I'm going to Get better-looking models, you know, a more expensive photographer, and we did the same thing. Hired some models and put them on the beach at Wind and the same sort of posed ad, and and uh, the sales went to about you know twenty-five, thirty thousand. And that next summer, I, I was working on a golf course, you know, out in El Cajon here, and that summer I just said, I'm going to I'm going to get out of it. It's just too hard. People, you know, two or three years, people don't get it. It's expensive product, and so. I figured out a way to just get rid of all the inventory. And then, you know, you you live in California, right? Yeah, I'm from
1: uh, Bay Area. Yeah,
0: but, you know, every October the first storm comes through and everyone just in California, oh, it's winter, right? And so I got home just soaking wet from the golf course and the answering machine had like 25 messages from every surf shop that I sold to, going, oh man, everyone's in my store today wanting Ugg boots, you know? Hey, i am run out, can I come down and get some, you know? And so I, I couldn't even go out of business properly, you know? <laughs> so I, I gave them everything I had and ordered a whole bunch more in from Australia. And before I advertised this next year, I, I was having a beer with one of my surf shop retailers in Ocean Beach. And I was explaining, I don't know what I'm doing wrong with the advertising. And he says, "Oh, shut up!" And he, he calls out the back to all these little twelve, thirteen-year-old grommets, and he says, uh, "What do you guys think of Ugg boots?" And every one of them just went, "Oh, those Uggs, man! They're so fake. Have you seen those ads? Those models—they can't surf." And like instantly, I realized my the, every image I'd put out was so fake and so posed that I was actually damaging the brand by advertising that way, right, not knowing it. You know, when you're an entrepreneur, you have to think laterally, you know, when you hit a wall, you've got to figure out a way around it. And I caught up a buddy of mine, Pete Townen, who was a former world surf champion, and he was running a scholastic surf association in Orange County. And I said, hey, Pete, you got any young kids who are going to turn pro soon? Because I I can't pay them. I'm paying them in Ugg boots, right? And he gave me these two guys, Mike Parsons and Ted Robinson. And so we just went surfing at Black's Beach and I took my little Canon Sure shot and I just did a photos of walking to the beach and, and we went up to Trestles in San Onofre there and did the same thing. And I ran ads with those photographs of just these guys walking from the beach. Fully clothed. The Ugg boots were, you couldn't even see the Ugg boots in the ads. They were that small. You know, the first ads were like all Ugg boots. These ads, you couldn't even see the Ugg boots, but the, it captured something and the sales that are that, you, you know, went to 220,000 just because I'd finally figured out what marketing and advertising is about where, you know, you never advertise the product like I had been the first couple of years. Now I'm advertising a lifestyle and. And I just knew that every little kid who reads Surfer magazine all over the world would die to be in that photograph, walking to trestles with Mike Parsons, right? And that's where I realized what branding is. The brand is not your trademark registration. And a brand is not your logo. And a brand is not your product. But a brand is what people think of you and i was able to recognize that i just created this like incredible you know every little kid at laguna high was saying mom i want a pair of ugg boots for christmas all the cool kids at school have got ugg boots right and this peer pressure started to build in the surf market that was unbelievable and uh when I figured and recognized what I'd done, it was really easy to translate into the snowboarding and skiing. I got these young snowboard kids, you know, with the pink hair and the, you know, the nose rings and shit. And then the hardest part of getting across to, you know, to back east was I, what do the kids do? You know, there's no surf. There's, you know, no real mountains. I was on a road trip with one of my sales reps visiting a sporting goods store. and He said, Oh, shit, they all play hockey? And I went, oh my God, it's perfect, you know. So I, I found Let's Play Hockey magazine in Minnesota, and it was for the kids, right? And we had the Hockey Mum of the Week competition, you know. Free <laughs> pair of Ugg boots for your mom, you know. Tell us why she's so great, you know. And then that sort of led into the moms having to buy Ugg boots for their kids, the boys. That's cool. And then they're going, well, my daughter would like these, you know, and my God, I'd like these, right? Yeah. And so it finally broke through the niche thing into being more mainstream. But that process I just described took six or seven years. It was really that's why I said those early days were just so hard. But I look back now, and that was the formative years of building a brand and a brand yeah. that's worldwide and. It's just, you know, it's just the highest level of branding. I was uh,
1: listening to your story and you, you commented how there was a sale of the company, or, but, but you didn't want
0: it. I didn't quite follow that. It wasn't a sale. It was like, as the business started doubling, it had its tremendous strain on it because I had to be, buy more product to be ahead of the curve. And even though I was a chartered accountant, I wow. didn't understand finance, right? And so I, Was always behind the gun trying to, you know, have enough inventory to sell. And so that meant getting bigger investors in and the new investors didn't want the old ones. So I had to buy them out. And, you know, so what you were referring to was this time I bought in three guys from Anaheim, right? And they were in the warehousing closeout business and, and they were going to bankroll it. By now, I'd really come to love sales. So I was going to be the salesman on the road full time. They were going to handle all the importing and the warehousing and the shipping and the accounting and everything. It was a great thing. But there was one part of the contract, You know, we were going to share it all 25% each. We'd all agreed on that. But I didn't actually get my stock certificate issued until I finished up this little trademark lawsuit that I was in. And I knew I'd win that. So we went ahead and signed up. It was like a week later, I'd I'd moved all the inventory up to Anaheim and I set up the warehouse and I got all the systems running. And so I went on my first road trip, right, as a salesman. And I went down to Huntington Surf and Sport and I walked in the door and and the owner, goes, hey, Brian, I heard you sold the business. I what? He says, yeah, I called an order in this morning. They said, you don't own it anymore. I said, you're kidding me. They said that. And I couldn't wait to get back to San Diego. I just. First of all, I, I went to the Shell gas station next door and called Neil. And I said, "Yeah, what are you telling people?" He said, "What do you mean?" I said, "So you tell them I don't own the company?" He said, "Well, yeah, you don't. You don't have your stock, you know." And I said, "Bullshit. We're four. You know, we're equal partners." He said, "Well, you've got to finish that loss." And I, you know, drove back and read the contract, and I, I went, "Oh shit! I actually don't own the company." And I just went into this huge depression. And for like four days, I, I didn't leave the house. You know and it was on about the fourth or fifth night. I remember I was lying on my back on the floor, watching TV and my wife was on the couch and when I, the show finished, I clicked it off and I rolled over on my stomach and I started crawling. I you know, got up on my knees and started crawling towards the bedroom. And my wife, who's really a quiet person, she just looked at me and says, you get up now and walk to bed like a man, you know? <laughs> <laughs> scared the crap out of me, you know. But but what it did, it was sort of broke this spell I was under. And I, I, as I'm coming up off the floor, it was like, oh my god, there's so much more to life than this crappy little company, you know. And so I slept like a baby that night. And the next morning, I was, you know, meditating, and uh, I thought, oh yeah, I got these goosebumps again, because I, th- I thought, you know, I've been thinking, what what can I do? You know, real estate, no. Business broker, maybe. You know, accountant, never. And then I just thought, oh, my God, I've come to love sales. And then what can I sell? I thought, damn, Ugg boots, right? So I called up the guys at Anaheim, and I, and I just ate humble pie. I said, look, I may never own the company, but I want to come back on board, and I, I want to get a pair of Ugg boots on every single person in America. And so that sort of flipped it around now. I, I went back on the road. They, they agreed not to tell anybody I'd sold the company. So that was good. It was just... Yeah, still me, and uh, you know I got back into the office at the end of the month, and he hands me a, you know, a check, and it's five thousand dollars. He says that's your commission, and that was the first money I'd ever pulled out of the company after five years. Right, and uh, went on the road again. And the next month, ten thousand. Next month, another ten thousand, and so I'm very philosophic in a lot of ways, and I've, I've found a lot of stuff that I put in the book. And the lesson there was that nearly always your, your most disappointing disappointments become your greatest blessings, right? So here was I just lost the company, and now I'm out on the road. It, selling isn't a work for me. I'm surfing with all the surf shop owners. I'm playing golf with other ones. You know, I'd walk in the store. I'd fix up all the sheepskin on the on the shelves. I'd give them a a list of what they owed me. You know, and it was so easy, and I loved it. And that was what really started to launch the company after that because then I, over the next three years, I built up about 30 reps, sales reps all over the country and uh, every fall, you know, most of the year in the summer and, and the, you know, the, going into fall, I would travel. I, I put up one and a half million frequent flyer miles in three years just traveling with the sales reps and each one of them had to get their 10 best customers and I'd go visit them all. And so that's like 300 customers a year by three years in a row. And, uh, you know, it was just an incredibly fun period of building the company and the brand. So
1: for clarification, did they sell the company because you didn't have your shares? or what? Happened? No, no, they,
0: they held it. In fact, did o- you? over that three-year period, Neil bought Paul and Joe out. So now Neil owned 100% of it. And he'd seen me coming in for, you know, you know, Christmas time and working in the warehouse and shipping—it wasn't my job. I just did it, you know. And uh, we got to be really good friends. And finally, I finished that trademark lawsuit. And uh, he called in and and uh, said, "Hey, Brian, you know, come in next Wednesday. We're going to get the lawyers in, and we're going to issue your stock." And like I was in heaven because finally, I'm you know, after three years, I'm going to own my own company, you know. And uh, I was out at the weekend. Right before that, and I had a car phone now. You know, you remember those ones with the cords, yeah? Yeah. And Laura called me, and she was crying. And she goes, "Oh, Brian, Brian, Neil's just died," and my whole world just like started to collapse again. I was so close to getting my stock and owning the company, and his wife had never set foot inside the business. She had no idea what was going on. So I called her up, and I said, "I'll come up next, you know, Monday, and we'll we'll uh, try and figure out what to do." And so. I basically signed on for a year of no salary, just working on the rest of my commissions. And, uh, it took me, you know, six to nine months to try and figure out how to make it work. And there's a whole other story in there. Um, but the bottom line is I was able to save the company that year. And, uh, at the end of it, when we decided we were going to, you know, I was going to get my stock, we, we bought new company cars, and we also took life insurance policies out on each other. And so, come Christmas, you know, the life insurance company called me up and said, "Hey, we want to settle on the, you know, Neil's death." And it was enough money for me to buy the entire business, hundred percent of the business back, and gave her all the profits for the year. And she made out like a bandit because you know she was so happy. Because had I walked away, she would have had nothing, and now she's she's not, got enough to retire on. And I ended up with a 100% of the company again. Totally broke, right, because I gave up every cent I had, but I owned a 100% of the company again.
1: That's so good to hear.
0: I was like, I was getting angry. Yeah.
1: Because I was like, you built this thing, you created it, and then you you don't even get the 20 you don't even
0: get 25%. I know, it was touchy. But, you know, when I look back at the number of times I could have given up, you know, selling 28 pairs, right, that's a good time to give up. When I... uh you know, lost the company. That was a good time to give up. There's so many times I could have given up, but just by believing in the product and believing that I could make something out of it, just it paid off.
1: And then, so then you were able to keep expanding it. You yeah. raised revenue. Yeah, I got, I got,
0: uh, I was a lot more savvy now, and uh, I was able to get some uh, really decent investors in. And uh, over the next, you know, five to ten years, we really started to expand. You know, from Two three million to six million to you know twelve to fifteen, and and it became quite predictable after that.
1: Do you wish you would have like worked less or done anything different with the experience?
0: Uh I couldn't have worked less because it had to get done. I wouldn't say I overworked, I but I was always busy. And my my mind never switched off from ARG. It was like you know, and I'm sure it's the same in your business. You know, you know what you, you'll go home tonight and think, what have I got to do next week? Yeah, always. So so. uh But it's not like you're killing yourself at work either. It's just stuff that has to get done. So I I did that for all those years. Overall, it was really enjoyable, you know, running my own business and having really good staff and and everyone. It was was like a team of uh, people on this really cool project. Most of my employees came to me and convinced me why they wanted to work with me. I didn't really go out and You know, advertise or anything. I I just had this continual stream of people. Oh man, I love Uggs. I've had my Uggs for so. I really want to be part of this company. You know, yeah. And and that was one of the easiest parts of running the business. I got some really dedicated people on board.
1: For someone wanting to start a company, you said perseverance is one of the key things. Or what do you think? I'd say it's
0: the most key thing. Yeah. As long as you got belief, you got a decent product, and you believe in yourself. If you stick around long enough, time has a funny way. Of making, you know, it can be really hard, 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 but something will just have, drop, you know, and it's like, Oh my God, that's, there's, there's another avenue to, and you spurt through it, you know, and that's how the growth happens. It do, you don't start here and go straight to there. It's hit a wall. Oh shit. Give up or overcome it, you know, uh, next one, next, next problem. Oh shit. I got another choice, you know, give up or work around it. And so the more times you work around it. The more market share you get and the more distance you put between you and the competitors, and time's the only thing that can do that by sticking in there and hanging in there. And every now and again, the break comes, and if you're smart enough, you take it, and that's where that little jump, you know, the blip comes.
1: When you think of a story of perseverance, what what do you think of?
0: Bugs for sure. I'll give you a great example. There was a company in Oregon importing running shoes from Japan called Blue Ribbon, right? They eventually became Nike. And they were going year after year just beating their head against the wall trying to get into the running market. And they were advertising in Runner's Magazine and they were advertising in college, um, you know, bookstore-type avenues to try and get the colleges to take their brand. And then outside, completely outside of their control, the sport of jogging took off. And so everyone's going, well, I need some jogging shoes, right? Well, so they'll find a, you know, running magazine and here's this company that's been there for years, Nike, Nike, Nike. So I'll buy a pair of Nikes. And so that demand that wasn't Nike's marketing, it had nothing to do with Nike. The demand for running shoes just happened and Nike was in the right place. Here's the kicker to the story. I read Shoe Dog by Phil Knight. the founder of Nike, and he listed the first years of sales. The first five years of sales of UGG was greater than the first five years sales of Nike. Now there's Perseverance, right? They just hung in and tried to get better every year doing what they did. Eventually, the world changed. Another one similar, there's a company in Santa Monica, and they had this little white kid leather dance shoe, and they'd been advertising for nearly 10 years they started in England They were trying to get into the American market with this dance shoe and they're advertising in dance magazines and high school cheerleading magazines, you know, trying to get the cheerleaders to take them on. And then outside of their control, the sport of aerobics happened. And you guess who that was? Reebok. Reebok. Yeah. Oh, that, who's, what's a good dance you? Oh, Reebok. They've, they've been there a few years. Let's get Reebok. And they got into the millions and the hundreds of millions and the billions. And the, people throw around billion now like it's a, a, an achievable thing. It's damn near impossible to get to a billion dollars unless there's some worldwide societal shift that takes it. And Reebok had theirs. Nike had theirs. Ugh did. Ours was a really lucky one, but it turned out to be Oprah. And right as I was selling the company, though, and how that came about, I had been shipping boots for this girl in England all for years. You know, it was Trudy Styler, who was Sting's wife. We want to be part of that cool, you know, image. And she called me up one day and said, Oh, Brian, I've just been to a seminar. It's changed my world. I need the most perfect pair of tall, size, whatever. You know brown Ugg boots, and and here's where to send them. And she goes, Oprah, I care of Oprah Winfrey. So, I sent them over there, and she immediately ordered twenty pairs for her staff. And then, and that was right in the year I was selling the company. But I knew that if we had just you know promoted or she promoted Uggs online, we would have been killed. We would out out of business instantly because we could not provide the product. So. When I sold it to Decker's Corp, but they had the money, they had the, you know that 20, 30 million in the bank, and we were able to set up the production behind the scenes so that when she did launch it, then it went worldwide, and that was a societal shift. And it went, you know, you know the millions, you know, we were already in the millions, but it went into the hundreds of millions and the billions eventually. So, so it's a very important theme, you know. When people ask me, "Oh, how do you start a billion-dollar business?" <laughs> you can't. You don't know what societal shifts coming down in 10 years ahead of time, you know? Well,
1: it sounds like for you, it's finding something you just enjoy doing and you care about. When you were running the company, were you able to have a work-life balance with your, with your wife and family? Yeah, I was,
0: I was really focused on that. Yeah. I mean, there were, there were times, luckily that three-year period where I put up, you know, millions of miles, the kids were like two and four, right? So they didn't even know I was gone. I'd come back at the weekend and pick up where we left off. But as the business grew, um, I was always very close to my two daughters and it was always about sports and about school and about, you know, family, so there was never any conflict for me, they didn't sort of miss me.
1: So as you got all the, you know, you made all this money, you said you, you didn't really change much, you didn't spend a lot, is there anything you you wasted the money on or any silly things? Cause when
0: you're newly rich like that and you've never really had it before, you think it's going to last forever. You know, we'd go to charity events and I'd buy shit that I would never need, but it's all for charity and I've got so much money. And so I made a lot of early mistakes like that, but not that that wasted all the millions, obviously, but it was like it showed a pattern of, oh, I can do this because I've got so much money. I'd probably do the same thing again, um, but be (laughs) more cognizant of it this time as as to am I making a really good investment with this money rather than just giving it away like, like I did. And I started businesses like the concrete business. That one, boy, that that was set to be another billion dollar business. And if the recession hadn't hit us in two thousand and nine, that today would be many billions. It was a brilliant product, but it's never gonna see the light of day because uh my intellectual property was in my head and my steel guy and the concrete guy and they're they're both doing great in their own lives now. And we just don't want to get, get back in the business, Nothing. you know?
1: We're in, a, in your house, which is very humble, and it's very comfortable. Yeah, yes, it's gorgeous.
0: I've, I've deliberately downsized to do that. Yeah, th- thanks for mentioning
1: I love it. It. Can you tell me about that? So did you get this one? You bought, like, some big house on the beach, you said? Oh,
0: yeah. I had a right at the end of La Costa Avenue here, and, and it rolled into the lagoon and looked out over the ocean. I was, it was one of the best properties on the California coast. And I loved it. I, 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 mean, we, I spent 18 years there, but... Every night, you know, I'd sit out the back with my meals, you know, and, and I, I had this little prayer and I'd go, you know, God, thank you for letting me be the caretaker of this property. Right? I never had ownership of it, even though I owned the house. My prayer was thanks for letting me be the caretaker of this property because I knew there's one day I'm going to move on, you know. And uh, it was, fat. I loved that place, but I loved this more. I was in my own little bubble down there and I got quite reclusive down there because it was such a paradise. And, you know, I just realized, Hey, I'm not seeing my friends as much as I should. And it was all because of the house, you know, and so I just started, you know, bit by bit figuring out, hey, I want to get somewhere, some other place. And this is, it's perfect for me. The main reason I used I was telling you I lived on the street looking out over the ocean. Now I, I look out over the mountains. And, you know, the view right. the view is fifty, sixty miles and I see the sunrise and I watch the moon rise and that that's so precious. Those times are so precious that it makes it all worthwhile. Yeah.
1: Yeah. because well, I think people imagine you make millions or billions or whatever this is and you're like you buy this big giant house and it's also interesting. You could be even happier having like a, a comfortable house with a great view, and like when we walked up, you're outside on your laptop smoking a cigar. Yeah, like, yeah. that was a great vibe. <laughs> how do you how do you look at money today? How do you feel about money today?
0: Um, it's a means to an end. I don't ever want that big house again. You know, I don't need to spend millions on a big house again. Um, I've been there, done that. I've had the best Mercedes that I could find at the time, a CLS 550. It was just like a, looked like a dart. You know, it was such a beautiful car. Been through that, done that. I don't need that for my ego anymore. You know, as long as the rent, I know I've got no problems with the rent being paid for a year or two. That's really all the money you need. You know, luckily because I'm speaking so much now all over the world, I've got paid vacations everywhere I go. You know, I make money by going out and traveling. And and one of my passions when I was a young kid was I want to see as much of the planet before I die as I possibly can and now it's all happening i didn't expect it to take this long but i am you know last month was in nepal and india you know back here in december i'll be in the philippines and then costa rica next year you know it's just a dream job that i got now and i just talk to entrepreneurs and and i share all my philosophy and uh i know i touch people they come up to me afterwards and you know some of them said oh my god i was I was going to give up my business, but now I realize I'm just coming out of the infancy. I'm a toddler, and, and now they can put a, you know, they can identify with where they are in the business cycle, and yeah. they're stoked all over again. They go, "I'm so excited to get out and take it to the," you know. And so I know I got goosebumps, you know, just thinking about the people that that, that I touch. It's brilliantly rewarding for me.
1: Were there other low moments during the Uggs period for you?
0: Oh, there were tons of them. Yeah, yeah. One of the ones I remember was in a really tight, tight period. And I figured that, okay, the only way I can make the payroll is to go and get a loan at the bank and make payroll today. Right. And my buddy, who was my accountant, you know, I told him, look, you know, this couple, they don't have kids. We, we can drop their pay a bit these like I can't drop them, they got little kids, you know, and so I went through and I, I gave deductions from, you know, most of the people, and I said, okay, I'm going to the bank to sign the papers and get the money in the bank account, and I didn't know, but he wrote the checks out and gave them to everybody before I got them all together in the room and said, listen, we are have tight, you know, we'll fix it up in, in a couple of weeks, and oh, I had this mass exodus that really pissed off people because I, I didn't explain it to them. And I can remember that night that it was raining and, and I can remember you know, everyone had gone and I'm sitting in my little office up there in Carlsbad and the rain's pelting on the windows and I was just just thinking how fickle life is, you know. Here I'd just gone out and, and, and mortgaged my soul for their payroll and they were so pissed off. They, you know I, I didn't get to explain the logic behind it. That, that was a real low point, but uh, you know, Two months later, you know how your most disappointing disappointments become your best blessings. The guys that were marginal, I never hired back and I hired a bunch of new people. And and three months later, I was, we were shipping like crazy. We had more money than we know what to do with and I had a much better staff. So it's, that's an infallible piece of philosophy.
1: And then you were able to pay the loan back and. Oh, yeah.
0: I'd, yeah, paid everything off, had tons of money to, you know, at the end of the season.
1: Did you and your wife work out during UGGs? Cause I know you said you you have a new girlfriend you now. Right. Was that through UGGs? No, guys? I
0: sold Ug before we, we split okay. up. Yeah. I mean, I can't believe she had the, the courage to marry me in the first place. I, had, I was only just starting UGG. I mean, I had no prospects whatsoever. And she joined me, you know, and, and she literally paid for the, you know, the first few years when I was, Trying to get it going, you know. She was just working for an architectural firm, and and she carried me for many years, and that's why after you know we sold the company, we we still are best friends. I spoke to her today, 25 years later, and we still got two kids. We're still parents. We've had every Christmas and Thanksgiving together in tw- for every every one of those 20 years. We're best friends, but I waited till after we sold the company. So we had tons of money so we could sort of separate properly. And we bottom line is we just looked at each other one day and said, do you want to get old with me? And I was mm, not really, you know, cause she was so different in many the things that she loves. And I wanted to get out and see the world. She could not give a damn. Right. So it was best for our lives that we did. And, and she's had a fabulous, you know, husband for the last you know, seven or eight years and, uh, you know, we, we get on great. That is awesome to hear. Yeah, I wish more people would do that. You get know, these people fighting about such petty shit and, you know, fighting over an animal, you know, or a, whatever, you know, if they could just realize that we're all human and uh, we're all trying to do the best we can. And if, Hey, if I don't suit you anymore, we're better off. Why not be friends and live different lives, you know? It's so much more humane to each other
1: did you try to do another like clothing company afterwards because i think one of the things i'm curious about when someone has like a hit song or a successful business i know for me i definitely have an ego i'm like well i did this thing so i gotta do something better and like yeah how how did you
0: i didn't ever want to get in the apparel business i loved it i still love it uh the footwear section of the apparel business is fabulous I, i love that and uh but i didn't want to try and duplicate it and that's why i got into the concrete and steel business it was completely new I was just in love with the science of cement at a microscopic level you know I just I just really enjoyed that part of the business and that that consumed another 10 years but I do mentor a couple of people. One girl uh, I've been with for nearly eight years, and she has this lamb leather sash bag. It's uh, It's got a pouch in the front and back, but it's flat on the hips, so you wear it like apparel, but it can fit all the shit these women lug around in those big bags. It fits everything in there. And we've been, in, or she's been importing those from India for probably 10 years now. Oh, that's cool. And I've worked for it for eight. And it's, you know, you would think, Having been through it with the UGG cycles, I would be able to sort of, you know, steer her around it. But it's going through every damn same thing that I went through with UGG because of the growth, right? It's just, you know, if you're not really well financed, you know, with, with a huge amount of capital, growth is the biggest killer. It's just so hard. Your success is the hardest part.
1: I do wonder though, like if you were to try to do a company like Uggs in Australia, like how would it have done? How would it have compared?
0: Well, the backstory is that you know how I said we caught up and ordered some Ugg boots, right? There's some samples. Everyone in Australia owns some sort of sheepskin footwear, right? (laughs) And it's been around since the '40s, and it just happened that you know the surfing group made them into boots so that they could put them on after surfing because the sheepskin it wicks moisture. And so you can put them on with wet feet and freezing feet, and in 10 minutes, they're warm and dry, right? And so there's been this 40-year battle. It just got finished like six months ago at the Supreme Court appeals that an Australian company was trying to disbar the, the UG registration. Uh, because it's gen- like they're saying it's generic in Australia, so you can't register a generic word. Uh, anyway, it's been 40 years, and we finally said, you know, the Supreme Court said, fuck it, it's a trademark, get out of here, right? But if I tried to launch it in Australia, they it would never have worked, because, like, let's say every little town in Australia had a little sheepskin factory, and they'd make, you know, bed underlays, and they'd make car seat covers, and, you know, <laughs> dusters, you know, for dusting Shit, you know, and UGG boots and they'd spell UGG or UGG or UGH or UGHS, you know, and everyone was different all over the country and nobody registered it because it was so old. And then back in the the early eighties, the Australians started to realize, you know, well, shit, Australia law is different. The first one in with the 10 bucks and fills out the form, you own the trademark. In the rest of the world, you have to establish that you were first in use and you never stopped. So this guy eventually registered UGH in Australia, and he wrote to all of the sheepskin manufacturers and said, I own the trademark now, you've got to stop using it. And I just went, fuck you. (laughs) All right. (laughs) So he couldn't enforce it. And they took it off the, the trademark register in Australia. And so it was never a problem until the internet came on board. And then all these Australians started advertising UGGs to the world. And that's I just sold the company to Deckers at that time and they they spent shit twenty, thirty million dollars in legal fees just policing the name worldwide and now it's pretty solid.
1: I think it's also interesting that like all these people in Australia are doing it, but it worked here.
0: Yeah. I did a lot of product development that they'd never done for twenty years in Australia and started to get like we'd get one boot that stood up and it's got a reasonably stiff skin. The other one would would flop over. Right? <laughs> And that's Australians would put up with that shit at the time. You know, it's like there's a saying down there: "It's like she'll be right, mate. Just go with it. She'll be right." And so I'm trying to tell my manufacturer, I can't sell a stiff, you know, skin with a floppy skin. I got to have the both boots in a pair the same. Oh, she'll be right, mate. Just sell them like they are. That's what we do down here. And I I took years. In fact, eventually after about the fourth year, I got a pair of snips and I, and I got a absolutely perfect boot and I cut it straight down the middle, straight through the sole, all the way up the back. And I wrote on it minimum quality for America. And I sent half down there and I kept the other half. Right. (laughs) And like overnight, it was like, it was like somebody said, Oh shit, we can do that. She'll be right. Maybe. Yeah, we can do that, you know, and just like. Instantly, the the quality just went up.
1: What I'm curious though is that you see the shoe in Australia. It's popular, but it's, it's not like does
0: everyone have one in Australia? They, they wouldn't brag about it, but they had them in their closet. M- everyone, but did. they wouldn't be seen with them. You know, it was it was just a you know that really uncool, like what we call rednecks in America, the rednecks. You know, owned them, and they wouldn't. You know, the, all the rich people had them, but they wouldn't be seen out on the street with them. I guess what I'm
1: still not clear on is, you persevered, but what gave you the conviction that this was going to work?
0: Remember, I was saying the most common thing I heard is, "Oh my God!" And and your foot will not get hot. You can wear it out at 100 degrees, or you can wear it out at minus 20, and your foot stays at foot temperature. That's the shit that I had to try and figure out how to get through to Americans. Australians are born with that knowledge. They just know it. It's funny when I think of Uggs,
1: I think of like girls with like Lululemon pants, that's you know, right. walking around in like Laguna I, Beach, like waited, great bodies. I you know. waited
0: for 10 years for that to happen. I <laughs> knew that's how it would end up. And I could not get, you know, the, 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 the started, that's why I started with the surfer, cool, cool kids. Then yeah, you know, Newport High, uh, you know, the, all the girls started wearing them and that got really hot. And, but it was always jeans, right? Yeah. Yeah. But eventually, when, when that aerobics thing came in and the, the, you know, the gyms started, that's when women started wearing them with their tights, you know, and you were yeah. exactly right. Lulee, lemons and Oaks, it was like synonymous.
1: And now they're doing, does $2 billion a year, you're saying? And
0: it's, uh, it's been in the billions for six or seven years now. I think, Last year, though, they hit two billion just in the UGG brand. Yeah,
1: but I think what you just said, which is also fascinating, is you had a dream. Your dream was that you saw this—the future oh, where there's going to be fewer. I fuel. knew
0: it. I never saw it going. In fact, when I sold the company, we were doing like fifteen million, and the Teva sandals was doing sixty. Right, and uh, I had to go up, and I had to present UGG to the you know 150 sales force, and I remember. Standing on stage going, you know, hey, well, congratulations, guys. You've just inherited what I think is going to be a $200 million brand. And and this groan went out through the audience. Like, who the fuck does he think he is? You know, we're at $60 million in Teva, right? And fast forward, you know, 10, 12 years, and now this is in the billions. Teva's down to 25 or $30 million now.
1: I remember the Teva period, too. Yeah. That was very popular. It was really
0: popular, yeah. But the sales force, they were just so arrogant that they were the best salespeople in all. The, oh, they were just order takers, you know, on the Teva bandwagon. Yeah. So they didn't really adopt UG for two or three years. And eventually they, they figured out what they had and did really good with it. Before UGGs and all that, what was your first job ever? I studied for 10 years to be an accountant, like a CPA. And uh, I finally graded, like I was working during the day and studying at night, it took 10 years. And the day I graduated, I quit. And
1: Sounds that, like you could have done on you know, nine years before, Tim.
0: Yeah, but I, I hate giving up things, you know. And, I, and I'm not saying that that I don't use that knowledge, you know, the accounting knowledge. But you know, I really wish I had understood finance. That's a whole different animal. I quit, and literally, I was meditating, and I I just bought my very first Pink Floyd album, those Dark Side of the Moon, right? And the words of the second song was that you know. I think it was, tired of lying in the sunshine, staying home to watch the rain. You are young and life is long and there is time to kill today. And I just heard those words. I went, shit, he's talking about me. Because I I just quit and I had no idea what I was going to do, right? And then one day you find 10 years have got behind you. No one told you when to run. You missed the starting gun. And I like got covered in goosebumps. I went, oh, shit. You know, and I was looking at all my friends tracking off to partnerships in the accounting, and all my other friends who started businesses straight out of high school, and they were all doing well. I felt like I'd been running on the spot for 10 years. And that's when I did my meditation, and I, I just started yoga. I found a book on yoga, and that sort of led to meditation. I can't say I deliberately did it, it just happened. And I was thinking, all the big trends are coming out of California. So that's why I came to California to find the next big trend in the U.S., like Levi jeans and waterbeds and skateboards and, you know, surf brands and all that. And I came here looking for that to take to Australia. I never intended to stay here, and I never went back. I mean, I've been back a 100 times, yeah. but I, ne- I never went back to live.
1: How has meditation impacted your life and business?
0: It's critical. I was telling you, I, I just got back from uh, San Francisco last night. I talked last night, I got back early this morning and I had to get up real early and by lunchtime today I was so burned out and I was so tired and I thought I can go to sleep and I thought no I'm not going to go to sleep I I meditated for an hour and I've got these guided meditations that I listen to and within 1 hour I'm back to full full pep full activity full you know enthusiasm and so meditations, it's an amazing thing because it quietens down your physiology, number one. But then, you know, the, the, I, I believe that the real us is the spirit in us, not the physical body part. And every one of us has this fragment or spark of God, pure God in us. And it's as an individual to every human on the planet as an, a thumbprint or an eyeball, you know? Yeah. And and it has a mission for where it wants us to go in life, and and you've heard me talk about goosebumps several times. Yeah, my spirit talks to me in goosebumps. Like something pretty monumental will happen. I think something, or someone will say something, or that some situation comes up, and I get goosebumps, and I, I go, oh that's really meaningful, you know, mm. and that's my spirit talking. It's not me thinking. It's just the way it is you know and so I talk about that from stage and you know, I was really scared to talk about God from stage at first and that was about a year ago but everybody picks up on it I think everybody at some innate level know that the the real part of me is inside me not the physical you know I've started to become more comfortable talking to people I look for the spirit in people and and it's always it always comes out it's really cool
1: how would you like to be remembered
0: the most common compliment I get, and it's the highest compliment I get when I come off stage is people just go, oh, my God, you're so real. you know. And that, I think, is how I want to be remembered, known as someone who is real and just was there for people.
1: What is real, Tim? You mean?
0: Okay, the risk of going overboard here. Um, unselfish loving is the greatest reality, right? And I don't mean unconditional love. I do not like unconditional love, but unselfish love where you just – Live your life to see how you can help anybody else that's in contact with you have a better day or feel better about themselves. Or, you know, I'm not going to solve their business problems or their marriage or anything, but to make them remember who they are inside is probably the biggest gift that I want to work on from now until I die is to just help bring out that spirit in people and let them know that there's a much bigger play than, you know, paying the rent and food's important, but Rent's important, (laughs) but apart from that, it's really in here.
1: Thank you. That is a wrap. I hope you loved the episode as much as we did making it for you. Go give Brian some love. Check out his book, The Birth of a Brand, Launching Your Entrepreneurial Passion and Soul. Next, text a friend you love him. Yo, mate, let's go buy some Uggs boots for Christmas. And before you go, tweet, Instagram, TikTok me, at Noah Kagan, K-A-G-A-N, and let me know what you thought of this episode. I love hearing from you. Also, remember to go subscribe to my email list. If you're not on the email list, y'all know what to go do. That's okdork.com. Go join it. We send an exclusive email each and every week just for subscribers, okdork.com. Finally, a couple of shout-outs to the amazing team. We got Jason at podcasttech.com for doing these podcasts. Thank you to Mitchell, Jeremy, George, Cam, Sasa, Nikki, and Jen for the Dork team for all the magic y'all do. And finally, a shout-out to all the SumoLink customers, our partners, and everyone at AppSumo for having an amazing Black Friday. We had tons of giveaways. We gave away my house forever. That was kind of crazy. We promote amazing products. Shout out Deposit Photos, shout out Vbout, shout out RoboMotion, shout out Formaloo, all these amazing partners and amazing customers who got products at an insane price that will help them start or grow their own solopreneur online business. Have a fantastic day. I'm talking to you. What's your favorite holiday food?